Hello, you're listening to So What, a podcast from Canadian Mennonite University. My name is Jonas Cornelson, and I'm doing a short intro here because, well, you're about to hear it all again. Today, we're replaying one of the very first episodes of the show from March 2021. This is partially to highlight some earlier content in case you missed it, but also to set up the series I'll be doing in the next three episodes. The episode you'll hear today is all about treaties, specifically those signed between First Nations and the British Crown in the country that we now call Canada. CMU is of course located in Treaty 1 territory, and its main campus is just two kilometers west of a parcel of land, formerly a military barracks, that is set to become Canada's largest urban First Nations economic development zone, known as Nawe Udena. For the next few months, I'm going to explore conversations CMU has hosted about this parcel of land, but I wanted to begin by keeping the broader concept of treaty in mind. And so, without further ado, here is our rebroadcast of So What About Treaties from March 2021. Enjoy. Hello, you're listening to So What, a podcast from Canadian Mennonite University. My name is Jonas Cornelson. So here we are at episode three of So What. Thanks for joining me. If you've heard previous episodes, you've heard me say CMU is located on Treaty 1 land in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and I'm speaking to you from Treaty 7, Calgary, Alberta. This is one form, a very short one, of a land acknowledgement, naming the agreements between Indigenous people and Canadian settlers on how to share land and resources. I include these brief acknowledgements because I hope that one day in Canada, knowing what treaty territory you're in, or if there isn't a treaty where you are, will be as automatic as knowing your city, province, and postal code. As we'll hear later in this episode, Without treaties, there would be no Canada. And they're not just old documents, they are living agreements. Well, as you've probably guessed, this episode is all about treaties. The speakers that we'll hear today are from a CMU face-to-face event called Who is My Neighbor? Treaty 1 and Mennonite Privilegium in Manitoba. This event reflected on two historic agreements in the same geographical area, one between First Nations and the British Crown, and the other between the Canadian government and Mennonite immigrants who settled in Manitoba. Now, I would like to avoid saying privilegium as much as possible, and we're a bit short on time, so in our 20 minutes today, we'll focus on what treaties are more broadly. Not the picky details of the text, but their deeper meaning and intention. Nigan Wawadim James Sinclair is an Anishinaabe writer and scholar who teaches at the University of Manitoba, and he offered some thoughts on the nature of treaties that made me think differently about myself as a treaty person. So I'm going to step aside for a minute and let Nigan Sinclair give us a quick rundown of what treaties are. Treaties can be written in the conventional sense or not. Uh, Treaties are not solely an Indigenous idea either, for beings all across the universe know about them too. Still, treaties are the template that Indigenous people follow in creating and maintaining relationships, for treaties are always about the future, never the past. 
And that's a, a quote from uh, Jamie Wilson, the former treaty commissioner who taught me about how important it is that we recognize that treaties are never really about the past. Indigenous peoples still view treaties as life-producing vessels if cared for appropriately. For others, treaties are generally understood as a sale kind of like a used car. One-time purchases where one side walks away from the other after the transaction, never to appear again. Uh, this is seen in phrases like, my ancestors didn't agree to anything, or why do you live in the past, or, or my personal favorite, uh, why should First Nations get everything for free? That's like a used car. That's like a used car sales. Uh, where you never have a relationship with the person that you presumably purchased off of something. There was no purchase. Indigenous peoples, like all Canadians, get nothing for free. We have all agreed to participate in mutually beneficial partnerships called treaties. As set out in these arrangements, Canadians were to get access to some of the richest resources in the world, while Indigenous communities continue their lives in bountiful and independent ways. So without treaties, there'd be no houses, no water, no sewer hookups, no universities, no Canada. Everything around us is due to them. So there's a lot that jumps out at me here, but especially the idea of treaties being about the future, not living in the past. This is the difference between a treaty and a used car sale. A treaty is not a one-time exchange of land ownership, but an ongoing promise to live well together on the same land. And that's where the idea of treaties as life-producing vessels comes in, and it ties into the clip I'm going to play for you next. Since our own life depends on the health of the land and ecosystem, the land is not an object to be exchanged, but land and all other forms of life are partners to these treaties. As Nigan says here, treaties are a way of understanding the balance between all forms of life, and human beings were actually some of the last partners to join these living agreements. So when I prayed at the beginning, I prayed for all of our relatives out there, but our relatives even before that, our relatives in the non-human world who are really the only reason that we are here. The human, the non-human beings are the most important members of treaty. They are truly the relatives that have opened up the space and adopted us when we showed up, whether they be Anishinaabe or the newcomers, the Wemetgojewak, the French, or the Jaganashok, the British. And that when people came within this space and they began to join into a series of relationships, it was those non-human beings who joined with us and adopted us. So I want to honor all of those relatives out there, not just the animals and the fish and the birds, but also the water and the earth and the moon and the sun and the directions, because it is truly them who have set the groundwork of treaty. Humans are only the addendum to treaty. And what I mean by that is we came to the party at the very last moment of creation. Creation was happening. There were a set of treaties between different beings to share space, to trade gifts, to make life well beyond human beings. So before humans were able to live and thrive on the Canadian prairies, or really any other landscape, so many things had to be balanced just right between the sun, the land, the water, the plants, the animals, the bacteria, and so on. And if you grew up in Canadian public school like I did, you probably learned to call these things the environment. 
something that kind of passively exists, maybe a stage where we perform the drama of human life. And it's funny that we think so highly of ourselves, because as Nigan said, without any one of these things I just mentioned, we wouldn't even be here. And our relationships with these foundational treaty partners are so much more crucial than ever if we want to continue being here as a species for much longer. Here's Nigan. And the most important message I want to offer this evening is that at this time in which the United Nations has presented us with a dire prediction of 12 years until the world is radically changed in a catastrophic manner, if we raise another 0.5 degrees on an average global temperature, we are facing imminent disaster. And it is our non-human relatives who are speaking to us now. And if anyone has forgotten the notion of treaties, it has been all of us, all of us here tonight, who, have, who will now spend this time reflecting upon what treaty really matters. What does it really mean? And ultimately, what does it mean? It doesn't mean a free pair of glasses, and certainly doesn't mean 99.9% .9 of the land taken by the Canadian state and left 0.1% for First Nations to be held in trust for them. Although that's a really important conversation. The treaty is ultimately on how all of us as relatives, as family, will live together into the future. Because it really doesn't matter how much all of us get along if we have nothing to drink. On a planetary level, we all need to recover the spirit of being treaty partners with each other and all forms of life. But back on the human level in Canada, the spirit of being treaty partners has not been honored by Canada and its governments. As Nigan reflects on this, listen to the way he describes the gap between true treaty relationships and what's happened in reality. Well, Canada has become one of the richest countries in the world. Indigenous peoples have received inadequate housing, tainted water, inappropriate funding caps due to, edu in, in, to education particularly, which all indicates that the relationship is not working. It's one that's exploitative, it's based on control, and ultimately isn't about a vision of family at all. It's about a vision of a used car sale. This really hit me. Treaties are these life-producing arrangements about becoming family. It's not a sale you walk away from. Negan continues to say that many Canadians have forgotten what it means to be treaty partners, and so we all need to be brave and remind each other. This is true today, and as you'll hear, it also goes all the way back to the first treaty in Manitoba. Nobody would want to be in a family like that, but constantly and continually, we are faced with that reality that there is a very small segment, but very vocal segment, mostly on Twitter, who are very vocal on the vision of what it takes to make a relationship within, within Canada and have forgotten the very documents that make us who we are. And at times, it is the responsibility of all of us to have courage to be truly Treaty 1 citizens to embody a notion of family and to stand up to that. And some of us may do that in other ways. We may do that, I have a group of wonderful, um, uh, I call them warrior women, who come to some of my workshops and they say, you know where our, our work is? It's in the Tim Hortons. Our, we're bravest there. And sometimes it's having that conversation in that space. Sometimes it's having a moment where you write a piece or you stand up against what you perceive to be uh, an unequal relationship. And sometimes it's helping a friend out. Sometimes 
It's driving out to a small town in Manitoba who says egregiously inappropriate things about Indigenous peoples, calling them terrorists, but is name, living in the name of the town of the lieutenant governor that negotiated the very treaty for him to be there. I believe he is referring to Selkirk here, in case you were wondering. More on him later. And sometimes you take him a gift. You don't take him a gift of a, of a punch, but you take him the gift of a cup of coffee and a donut, the language maybe he'll understand. And that's what have being in relationship is truly all about. That's what being in family is all about. That is how a relationship is built, a relationship built based on kindness, equality, but most importantly of togetherness, of commitment to one another. And some of that stuff is hard at times to hear because it involves facing a lot of realities that many of us have been taught as truths for many, many long time. Some of that truth has been that Indigenous peoples came from savage and inferior civilizations and Canadians' job were to get them out of those realms of savagery. But that is only one story. The other story is of a relationship in which Indigenous peoples invited others into a family that was already in existence even before Indigenous peoples even got here. And embodied by the Selkirk Treaty of 1817, which is the very reason that we are here tonight, Peglis turned to Selkirk and said, if you're going to be here forever, you must every year bring a gift. And that gift is embodied by a sema or tobacco, or the language in which we understand relationships to be built. Because the teaching of tobacco is not one that is about earning or growing, not just about those things, but it's also about the work that it takes to become a good, responsible family member. Because it takes an incredible amount of effort to grow tobacco. And Pegwis turned to Selkirk and said, every year you must bring me a hundred pounds of it. And that will make your presence here complete. You will always have a home here. And most importantly, you will always have a family that will care for you, that will walk alongside you, and will make sure that you never go cold, you never go hungry, you never get sick. And in the end of the day, isn't that what we all want? Isn't that what we all want, is we want to not be alone? And Selkirk, the first time, offered that 100 pounds of tobacco and never came back. He never came back. And for years, Pegwis wondered, would Selkirk ever come back? The great silver chief even wrote a letter all the way to the king and said, uh, is the great silver chief ever going to come back? I am waiting. I am waiting. I am waiting. Those last three words, I am waiting, they totally get me. Because if Pegwis was still around, you can bet he'd still be waiting. And you may have also caught some of the other themes we've been talking about in that second story. The treaty relationships were in place even before the indigenous people invited newcomers in. And these newcomers were invited as family, with continued benefits and obligations symbolized by the hundred pounds of tobacco that Selkirk was to bring to Peguis every year. And yet, Selkirk seemed to think he was getting a used car. He paid his 100 pounds of tobacco once and walked away. And like I said, those last words of Pegwis, I am waiting, they haunt me. Because they're so true to this day. Here are a few more words from Nigan. For many of us in this community, with perhaps a smaller segment that aren't here tonight to have this brave conversation, we all ask, 
Are we ready? We are waiting. We are ready. And are we, are, are we ready to have those conversations to be brave and to be courageous and to be together forever as the treaties intended us to do? There is so much to think about here. And there's always so much more to learn about treaties well beyond what we can cover in this episode. But like I said earlier, Negan's words helped me think differently about being a treaty person. I've often gotten kind of hung up on wondering what the best thing we can do is in light of the text of the written treaties. And that's still important. But I wonder if the written treaties can also serve as kind of a framework for adopting this true posture of ongoing family-oriented relationship, person to person and nation to nation. It's about more than just what's written down. And I think part of doing this is also learning from the past and how cultural differences have limited these relationships. The other speaker at this face-to-face event, Hans Werner, has researched Mennonite settlement on the Canadian prairies. And I'm going to share part of his talk where he discusses Mennonite views of land as a resource for improvement. We do have to acknowledge that the notion of improvement is deeply embedded in Mennonite culture. Our people have a long history of modifying the created landscape to, quote, improve it, make it more productive. Where our ancestors, uh, the descendants of the Dutch, North German, Prussian Mennonites, came from in in the Vistula Delta, there is no natural land. It has all been created by diking, draining, and otherwise modifying the natural landscape. We have a deeply embedded sense of improvement. If if, If somebody is using the land and not improving it, is it really theirs? I mean, I'm just sort of saying, you know, that's a deeply embedded cultural notion. Mennonites became participants in the alienation of land from indigenous peoples and the ongoing breach of promises made to them. Although we may have had initially had some some connection to a notion that land tenure was communal and involved sharing God's creation, we very quickly embraced the march to British notions of property and property rights. As a historian and hence a storyteller, I do embrace the value of telling each other's stories as an important step on the way to reconciliation. I do believe, however, there is a rising danger among us of thinking, and and, uh, and Nagan has already alluded to this, of thinking, if not saying, that indigenous people need to move on. To affect a sense of being reconciled does imply, ultimately, of being able to move on. But for this story, when that is, is not for us to decide. As Mennonites who now enjoy the benefits of, quote, owning the land, we need to listen, listen, and listen again. A similar desire to pay whatever seems fair and then move on will likely also not result in reconciliation. Compensation in the form of money, while important, will by itself not lead to reconciliation. I do not know what the steps are that will be on the path of reconciling us with our indigenous neighbors. In the case of the young Chippewan people and the Mennonites of Saskatchewan, it has meant celebrating together on sacred land, joining them in making a case to the federal government for land claim compensation, and listening to their story. It is not a finished story. 
Hans reminds us here that cultural views of land, including whether land can even be bought or sold, have limited true treaty relationships. I also appreciate his reminder that in this broken relationship, it is not up to those who caused the most harm to decide what healing looks like. Treaty relationships are a journey, and I hope that Canadian settlers, myself included, will keep taking steps toward honoring the true intent of these agreements. That was our episode on Treaty from March 2021. Back here in 2023, I hope you'll join us for our series on the past, present, and future of the Nawe Udena project in Winnipeg. The first episode comes out in February. My name is Jonas Cornelson, and I'll talk to you soon.